Good morning. Please turn to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. What do you think of when you hear the word tolerance? I think that many Christians are conflicted when it comes to the idea of tolerance. The word itself sounds good, but we are aware that Christians are so often labeled as intolerant. Do you ever find yourself buying into that idea just a little bit? Intolerant has become a synonym in modern society for unreasonable. And taking a hard line as Christians certainly doesn't seem to win many people over to Christ. So maybe we ought to sit back and take another look at why the world labels us as intolerant. Let's start with what the worldly perspective on tolerance is today. Let's try this. All views have equal merit, and none should be considered better than another. Does that sound like a fair representation of what is being taught as tolerance today? I think it is. And it sounds pretty good on the surface. Those who practice this brand of tolerance are considered to be open-minded or even true intellectuals. The problem is that this statement is true only if no one holds a contradictory view. As soon as someone, me for instance, takes this view that says all views don't have equal merit and that some should be considered better than others, then by the first statement, my view is just as valid as it is. But the two statements are complete contradictions of each other. So how can both be true? Now, simply put, they can't. And that's one of the ways in which the modern idea of tolerance falls apart. It confuses respect for others with acceptance of their ideas and beliefs. Do all people have value? I believe they do. Each one of us was created in the image of God, and Christ shed his blood for every sinner. With that basis, we need to see, or we see the need for respect of all people, and not just respect, but love. Jesus quoted Leviticus 19.18 when he said that the second greatest commandment was, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus also said in Matthew 5.44 to love our enemies. It seems to me that he covers all the bases here. Who else is there? But to respect and love others. Do I have to accept their ideas and beliefs? Absolutely not. In fact, sometimes the only way to love someone else is to disagree with their beliefs. Certainly, we see this in Christianity when we think of the fact that many people do not have faith in Jesus Christ as the Son of God and as the Savior of mankind. So in love, we communicate those truths to them and tell them how important it is for them to change their minds. We might say, repent, in order to receive salvation and eternal life. But even those who are the best examples of modern tolerance are not truly tolerant of all other ideas or beliefs. There are established truths that are universally recognized. Two plus two equals four. Of course it equals four. No one who is of sound mind and who has learned this fundamental fact would ev ever argue otherwise. That doesn't mean that there aren't those who would argue otherwise, but only that no one of sound mind and sufficient instruction 
would disagree that this many plus this many is this many. And I know all the math geeks out there, you're thinking, yeah, but in, in base 3, 2 plus 2 is 11. Is it just me? It's just me. Okay. Well, in the same way, even the most tolerant by the modern definition still will not accept that things like murder, rape, child abuse, or theft should be accepted along with all other behavior. But we're kidding ourselves if we think that that won't ever change. What used to be recognized as perversion and sinful is celebrated today as diversity. The moral underpinnings of a stable society are infested with the termites of so-called tolerance. And unless things change, a collapse is coming. And some would say that it's too late already. Now, why am I telling you all this? This morning, in Revelation 2, verses 18 through 29, we're going to read about the church in Thyatira, fourth of the seven churches addressed in, the Reve in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. The Christians in Thyatira had a problem with tolerance. No, it wasn't that they were intolerant. The problem was that they were too tolerant. And that's not me saying that. Jesus is the one who said that. Let's begin by reading Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 through 29. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet are like burnished bronze, says this, I know your deeds, and your love, and faith, and service, and perseverance, and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, and she does not want to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of her deeds. And I will kill her children with pestilence, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and the hearts. And I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. But I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan, as they call them, I place no other burden on you. Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. He who overcomes... And he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. All right. As we continue around this rough circle of churches, we travel 35 or 40 miles southeast from Pergamum, and we come to Thyatira. Thyatira was located at the head of a long valley that led down to Pergamum, and at times in history, Thyatira served as the protector of the entrance to that valley, sort of a security buffer for Pergamum. Any enemy that wanted to attack Pergamum by land would come through Thyatira first, and so they would station, at times in history, there were 
military garrisons and, and uh, military forces there stationed at Thyatira to protect Pergamum. Now, as far as I can tell, these are all the ruins of ancient Thyatira as they exist today. The modern Turkish city of Akisar surrounds them, the latest in a long line of cities built on the site. Thyatira was not a large city, and it didn't occupy a prominent place in the Roman Empire. Uh, there were the usual temples dedicated to various pagan gods, but the outstanding characteristic of Thyatira was the large number of craftsmen guilds present there. Thyatira was the home to many different trades, workers in wool, linen, leather, copper and bronze, as well as potters, tanners, bakers, slavers, and dyers of wool. Outside of Revelation, there's only one other mention of Thyatira in the Bible, Acts chapter 16, verse 14, where it is named as the hometown of Lydia, a seller of purple cloth, who became the first known convert to Christianity in Europe. You remember the story there, Paul and his companions were traveling, they came to Philippi, Lydia was down by the river, meeting there with others to pray, and, and Paul met her there, explained the truth about Jesus to her, and she was baptized into Christ right there. Well, each of the trades mentioned that existed in Thyatira, and perhaps others, had its own guild. These guilds functioned somewhat like modern-day unions, supporting the workers in the various trades and giving them a means of pursuing their livelihoods. In order to do business in a particular trade in Thyatira, one had to belong to the corresponding guild. In order to belong to the guild, a tradesman would have to engage in whatever rituals or observances the guild specified, often including idolatrous worship and immoral activity. Needless to say, that made it difficult for a Christian to be a member of a guild in first century Thyatira. One wonders, how Lydia fared, if and when she returned home, but we have no mention of that in the scriptures. So with those things in mind about Thyatira, let's look at what Jesus had to say to the Christians there. As in each of the letters to the seven churches, Jesus identifies himself in some way, usually one reminiscent of the descriptions of him given in Revelation chapter 1. Here, in verse 18, he calls himself the Son of God, which was not used in Revelation chapter 1. John, the writer of Revelation, refers to Jesus as the Son of God several times in his gospel and in the letter of 1 John. But this is the only time Jesus uses this term for himself this plainly. There is another time when Jesus was uh, before Pilate, uh, or he was with the Pharisees. And they questioned him, and they said, uh, so are you the Son of God? And he said, it is as you say, which, whichever account that is, I'd have to go back and look. But this is the only time he comes right out and calls himself the Son of God in, in, this, uh, in this plain language. Several of the heresies or false teachings of the early church had to do with denying the full deity of Jesus. And so the reason for him saying this is clear. He is the Son of God, which makes him deity in his own right. This would put Jesus in contrast to the false gods worshipped by the members of the guilds in Thyatira. There were many supposed gods, but there is only one true God, and he is the one speaking to the church in Thyatira. 
the second description here uh, that we have of who's speaking, is eyes like a flame of fire. And that description is found in Revelation chapter 1 in verse 14. This description seems to refer to Jesus' omniscience. He sees everything, therefore he knows everything. In verse 19, as in each of the letters, Jesus will tell the church in Thyatira what he knows about them. And eyes like a flame of fire indicate that he has that knowledge. And then it says, feet like burnished bronze. This is another description of Jesus found in Revelation chapter 1, this time in verse 15. Some believe that this description was referenced because of the bronze industry that existed in Thyatira. But I think there's more to it than that. In Psalm 110, verse 1, David wrote, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Jesus said in Luke chapter 20 that this reference concerns the Christ, the Messiah. That means it was a reference to Jesus. To make his enemies a footstool indicates his power and authority over them and their subjection to him. The reference here to Jesus' feet also refers to his, his power and authority over the churches and their subjection to him. As we'll see at the end of the passage, it also refers to his absolute power and authority over the nation. Let's go to verse 19. Because there were some things that Jesus praised the Christians in Thyatira for. Actually, he praised them for many things. Persecution is not directly mentioned concerning Thyatira, though we understand that because of the situation with the guilds, it would have been difficult for Christians to find employment and to support themselves there. In spite of whatever opposition they faced, the church in Thyatira was doing very well in several areas. Jesus mentions their deeds. Now, he doesn't define them, but the implication is that they are good deeds. When you look at the rest of the list of things for which Jesus praises the church there, it's clear that these people didn't let faith become something intellectual. They acted on their faith, and Jesus commended them for doing so. Thyatira is the only one of the seven churches commended for their love. Unlike Ephesus, which had left its first love, Thyatira was noted for its love. Now, we have a definition of love that we, like to, that we like to bring out at times like this, and, and we say that love is the consistent commitment to sacrificial self-giving that seeks the highest good of another. The Christians in Thyatira showed genuine Christ-like love for each other, and I think probably for those outside the church as well. Jesus also commends the, Christ, commends the Christians there for their faith, as we mentioned a moment ago, faith isn't just an intellectual condition. When we studied the book of James, we saw that real faith is expressed in our works, doing deeds that are consistent with God's will for us and for our lives, helping others, speaking truth, and continuing to believe in Jesus and in his saving work are all aspects of a sincere faith. These Christians in Thyatira lived every day believing the promises of God are true. It is this living faith that showed up in how the Christians in Thyatira served one another, and probably those who are outside the church, but especially in how they served God. Service, whether to God or men, could be called the physical expression of agape love. 
Real love is love that is shown in some way. Whatever their acts of service were in Thyatira, Jesus pointed them out as outstanding. And even as love and service go together, faith and perseverance go together. Just because serious persecution isn't mentioned in this letter, that doesn't mean there wasn't any persecution at all in Thyatira. Jesus specifically commends the Christians there for their perseverance, which they maintained, I believe, on account of the faith that they had in Jesus. They kept following Christ. They didn't give up. And they kept reaching out in practical ways to help others. And on top of all these good things, Jesus mentions that the Christians in Thyatira are increasing in their good deeds. They're getting better at putting others first and being the hands and feet of Jesus on earth. If the letter to Thyatira stopped there, we would think that this was the ideal church, and I think we should give them due regard for the way they lived out their discipleship to Jesus. They were sincere in their faith, devoted to good deeds, motivated by love, and persevering on account of their faith. And they were getting better at these things as time went by. Now, even though we're about to proceed on to the more difficult portion of this letter, I think we should realize that the description of the church in Thyatira, given so far, ought to be a description of the church of today, including this congregation right here, right now. Good deeds, love, faith, service, perseverance, and spiritual growth are all things we should strive for as individual Christians and also as a congregation. And so that's the good points about the church in Thyatira. But as we come to verse 20 here, as with most of the churches, there's a problem, and this one is pretty big. The name Jezebel is probably not the actual name of the person involved, but refers to the reputation of the Queen of Israel by that name in the Old Testament. Now, Jezebel in the Old Testament was the wife of King Ahab. And you want to know what Jezebel was like? She was evil, wicked, mean, and bad, and nasty. Okay? As bad as Ahab was, uh, 1 Kings 16.33 says that Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel than all the kings of Israel who were before him. But as bad as Ahab was, Jezebel was worse. She promoted idolatry by supporting and feeding the prophets of the false gods, Baal and Asherah, at the same time killing the prophets of the Lord God. When her husband wanted a particular vineyard, but the owner, Naboth, didn't want to sell, it was Jezebel who engineered Naboth's murder. After Elijah put the prophets of Baal to death, it was Jezebel who vowed to Elijah that she was going to kill him for doing so. So the reference to some woman as Jezebel in Revelation chapter 2, verse 20, is a serious indictment on her and her activities. We don't know who this was exactly, though many believe she had some connection to the leadership of the church since she was involved in teaching. Some have even gone so far as to say that she was the minister's wife, and I sincerely hope that was not the case. At any rate, she was teaching other Christians to engage in idolatrous practices and sexual immorality. It's possible that there was a connection between these activities that she promoted and the activities of the guilds and their members. 
But there was more to it than that. Down in verse 24, we see that she and her followers claimed to know and practice the deep things of Satan, or what the NIV calls Satan's so-called deep secrets. Now, it seems to me that whoever this woman was, the only connection that she and her followers had to Christianity was well behind them. This is different than what we studied about the church in Pergamum. In Pergamum, the Christians were generally still trying to practice Christianity, even as they participated in the worldly activities. In Thyatira, there was a group of what I believe should now be called former Christians who were pursuing the deep things of Satan. And then there was still a group of committed, sincere Christians who were following Jesus pretty well for their part. And we'll talk more about what the problem with those Christians was here in a moment. But not only had a group of Christians gone sideways in their doctrine and their conduct, but they had already been taken to task for it by Jesus himself. Jesus says, I gave her time to repent, and she does not want to repent of her immorality. Even after we become Christians, we can do things that require repentance again. Now, I won't say that's okay, but it does happen. And Jesus gives us the opportunity to repent and turn back to what is right. What is it? 1 John 1, 9. If we say we have no sin, we are liars and the truth is not in us. But if we, are, if we confess our sin, he is faithful to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, Right? Well, Jesus doesn't condemn Jezebel and her followers just for how they have sinned, but also for their lack of desire to repent or to return to him. Sin can be forgiven, but it won't be unless there is repentance on the part of the sinner. Repentance isn't just saying, yep, I guess I'm a sinner. Repentance isn't even just saying, I'm sure sorry I'm a sinner. Repentance is acknowledging that you are a sinner being sorry that you are a sinner, and letting go of your attachment to sin so that you can change into the person who God wants you to be. Jezebel and her followers knew they needed to repent, but they didn't want to repent. Jesus was not happy about that. And so he tells the faithful Christians of the punishment that is coming to Jezebel and her followers. Jesus says that he will throw Jezebel onto a bed of sickness. This is probably in contrast and in reference to the bed of immorality she now occupied, the things that she and her followers engaged in there. Well, if she and her followers did not repent, Jesus would cause them to have a terrible time of suffering. Now, we talked before about different kinds of suffering. This is not the suffering of testing. This is the suffering of punishment. And let me just say this, if you are suffering and you're not sure whether it is the suffering of testing or the suffering of punishment, it's time to examine your life thoroughly for any possible areas where repentance is needed. Jesus goes on to say that he will kill Jezebel's children, which I take to mean those who followed her sinful teaching. But there's a point to all this. The way Christ dealt with Jezebel and her followers would be an example to all the other churches and would remind them that he is the one who knows what is in every person's mind and in every person's heart. 
Not only that, but the churches would be reminded that Jesus is the one who gives to each one according to his or her deeds. And this, this is the principle of Galatians 6, 7, where it says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. Choices matter. Choose wisely. And now go back to verse 20 for a moment. All this talk about Jezebel and her followers may have clouded the issue for a little bit, but let's not forget the problem that Jesus said the faithful Christians in Thyatira had. But I have this against you that you tolerate the woman Jezebel. Now this is a separate issue from the practices of Jezebel and her followers. This statement is for those who haven't embraced Jezebel's teaching. I mean, not doing what Jezebel taught was a good thing, right? So why is Jesus condemning those who aren't involved in that? Well, it's because they tolerated what was going on. This is the tolerance we talked about at the beginning of the message today. The faithful Christians knew that what Jezebel te was teaching was wrong. That's why they didn't participate in it. But they didn't condemn those practices either. And it seems that they continued to fellowship with Jezebel and her followers as though they were all still followers of Christ, only in different ways. And we might ask, well, what should the faithful Christians have done? I think that they should have disassociated themselves from Jezebel and her followers so that those outside the church would see that these sinful practices were not acceptable Christian conduct. And so Jezebel's influence would not continue to spread in the church. If Jezebel or those who followed her repented, they would be welcomed back into fellowship with the faithful Christians. But we need to remember that this is the criticism Jesus had for the faithful Christians in Thyatira. And it's where the title of today's message comes from. They were tolerant of things that, they, that couldn't be tolerated. They were intolerably tolerant. Well, there's still some, some good things here toward the end in verse 24. Uh, our, our friend Rick Bondi here, Rick used to say that there are six stages to every project. And Rick, uh, let me know if I get the, any of these wrong at any point, okay? Uh, Rick said that there are six stages to every project. First, there's initial enthusiasm, which is followed by disillusionment. And then there's panic, search for the guilty, punishment of the innocent, and praise for the non-participants. Well, that may not be exactly what Jesus had in mind here, but I think he does praise the non-participants in Jezebel's teaching. After telling them that they should not tolerate Jezebel or her teaching, Jesus goes on to say that he doesn't require anything else of them. They really are doing well in their Christian walk. Jesus encourages the ones who are faithful to continue in their faithfulness. In verse 25, he also tells them to hold fast to what they have until he comes. I don't think he means that he's going to return in their lifetime. Obviously, that didn't happen. But I think this is similar to the message to the church in Smyrna. Be faithful until death. What was it that the Christians in Thyatira had? Well, they had good deeds. 
love, faith, service, and perseverance. And they were growing in all these things. These are the things that Jesus is telling them to hold fast to until he comes. The author of Hebrews put it this way in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Jesus is perfectly faithful to us, and he wants us to be faithful to him in the same way. As we come to verse 26, we see that there are some rewards for those who overcome, just like there have been mentioned to each of the other churches we studied so far. For those who overcome and remain faithful, there is a reward of some kind. And here in verses 26 through 28, there are three things mentioned. And of those three things, at least in my opinion, in my mind, two of them are a little difficult. Jesus said that to those who overcome, he would give authority over the nations. What does he mean by that? Well, I'm not exactly sure. I associate it with what we find in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2. 1 Corinthians 6, 2, Paul tells the Christians in Corinth, that they shouldn't be taking each other to court to settle their disputes. And he says this, Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? So what is the nature of that judgment? Well, it's still not entirely clear to me, except that Jesus promises that authority to those who overcome and who keep his deeds until the end. The second reward for the overcomers is they will rule the nations with a rod of iron. And that sounds kind of oppressive, but actually the activity depicted here is like that of a shepherd, turning and correcting the sheep in gentleness rather than violence. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 15 admonishes Christians to speak the truth in love. And it may be that in this way we will exert Christ's authority in the world. And we must remember that it is his authority. Right before he ascended into heaven, Jesus told his disciples that all authority had been given to him in heaven and on earth. Whatever authority he might transfer to us is still his authority. The third reward for the overcomers, found here in verse 28, is the morning star. Now here's the part where we get to peek at the end of the book again to see a little bit of what's to come. So you've got Revelation open there. Turn over to Revelation chapter 22 and look at verse 16. Go to Revelation 22, verse 16. Here's what it says. I, Jesus have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Jesus himself is the morning star, the one who overcomes, who remains faithful until the end, who keeps the deeds of Jesus until the end will receive Christ himself. And I take that to mean that we who are in Christ, when we die or when he comes, whichever comes first, will then actually be with him from then on through eternity. As each of the other letters has promised, this is a reference to the eternal life that can be had only by knowing Jesus as Savior and Lord. 
going to put some things up on the screen here. <clears throat> and uh, I want to know if you can tell me what the following groups all have in common. The conservative Jewish movement, the Episcopal Church, the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. We'll talk about that in just a minute, so just bear with me here. Presbyterian Church, USA, same thing, we're going to talk about that. Reform Jewish Movement, Society of Friends, that's the Quakers, the Unitarian Universalist Association of Churches, and the United Church of Christ. Now see, we need to be a little careful here. For example, the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America it's only been in existence since the 1980s sometime, okay? It's one particular segment of the Lutheran Church, and it's not associated with all other Lutheran churches. So don't, don't get the idea that just because it has the word Lutheran in it that it's, it's the whole uh, thing that we perceive as the Lutheran Church. This is actually a separate group. Similarly, the United Church of Christ has no connection to the independent Christian churches and churches of Christ, okay? And I know that not even all these organizations profess faith in Christ. But I still have the question, what do they all have in common? Well, yeah, I know it's kind of, kind of diverse, isn't it? Here's what they have in common. They all authorize the sanctioning of same-sex marriages by their clergy, and some of the groups, like the Episcopal Church and the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, also ordain their ministers regardless of sexual orientation. Now, this was not always the case. For all of these groups, established principles had to be changed in order to accommodate the influence of so-called tolerance. This trend is hardly likely to reverse itself, and I think we can count on things to continue in this direction for more and more groups as time goes by. But this is just one example of the world influencing the church. And this influence didn't start in the entire church body. It didn't even start congregation by congregation. It started as individuals who determined that they would engage in conduct that the scriptures call an abomination to the Lord. And then it gained momentum as those around them tolerated that conduct. Now, this isn't a sermon about homosexuality. This is a sermon about intolerable tolerance. But I think it's clear from what Jesus says to the church at Thyatira that Jesus expects his followers to uphold and promote the ideas and behaviors that he himself would uphold and promote. That responsibility starts with each of us as individuals. If you're already a Christian, be very careful about what sorts of teaching and behavior you approve of and support. We are not being judgmental when we apply what Jesus or God explicitly state or command regarding doctrine or behavior. I mean, who are we to say that we need to be more tolerant than God? And if you're not a Christian today, I'll ask this. Are you willing to subject yourself to the commands and desire of Jesus, 
seeking his will for your life, serving him faithfully until he returns? If you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, if you believe that he died on the cross and rose from the dead so your sins could be forgiven, and if you would recognize that because you have sinned, you need to repent of that sin and your life needs to change, then please, if you want to be in Christ today and you're not already, please come forward as we stand and sing our invitation song.